Father, we thank you that you are good. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here today. We soften our hearts to hear you. We open up our ears so that we will grasp your words. We invite you to step into those hard places in our life, to speak and to do what you need to do. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name, amen and amen. Amen. I'd like for you to take your Bibles today and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. We're in a series entitled, Not Alone, and today I've entitled this message, Stop Hijacking Your Relationships. Several years ago, I was in a plane. Now, let me say, I've never been hijacked before, thank God. If you live in Chicagoland area, you'll know that there was an escalation over the last few months of carjackings that seems like it's getting a little bit more under control now. But I, I was on a plane from Chicago O'Hare Airport flying to uh, Madrid, Barajas Airport, and we were over the Atlantic Ocean, and the pilot says to us, uh, due to weather, we have to make an emergency landing in Portugal. And I looked out the window, clear blue sky. And he said, so we apologize for inconvenience, but we have to land in Portugal. And so as soon as we landed in Portugal, policemen entered into the airplane and were ushering us out of the airplane rapidly, like in a panic mode. And when we asked, hey, what's going on here? They told us, well, there's supposedly a bomb on this airplane. Now that'll move you quick off the airplane. And someone had called up and they had said that there was a bomb on the airplane. And so, although they were not hijackers there, it caused us to reroute our vehicle, our, our transportation to another country because that's what hijacking does. Uh, you are in route to a destination and hijacking reroutes you off that destination to another place that you don't want to go to by force. And so many of us, desire to have healthy relationships, desire to have a good marriage, a strong family, a healthy community. But listen, we self-hijack because of our bad habits and practices when it comes to relationships, and we end up in a destination that's not where we want to be because not someone else's fault, but our fault. And so I want to talk to you about that as we talk about the topic of not alone. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about community, uh, or, or we talked about how God sees us and we're not alone. Last week, Pastor Josiah talked about community and the importance of it. And today I want to talk to you about relationships because oftentimes we find ourselves isolated and alone, not because of our circumstances, but because of our bad practices when it comes to relationships. So you ready to learn today? Okay, so take your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 25. 
Um, verse 25 starts by saying, therefore. Now let me pause a second. I've taught you this before in the context of Bible study. Every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is it? Come on. When you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself this question. What is it? Therefore. It means that I'm building on the previous thought. The Bible is a series. Most of the writings are a series of thoughts that build upon each other. So it's dangerous to take one thought or one verse out of the Bible, out of context. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers and in verse 25, he says, therefore, so immediately we have to look at the previous verses and ask, what is he building on? Verse 22, it says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off, say put off, the old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on, say put on, the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, therefore. So what he's building on is the thought of you are not the old person that you were. You have to put on a new self and take off the old self, and the old self acts different than the new self when it comes to relationships. Some of you have come to Christ, but you are still engaging in relationships the way that you did it with your old self. And God is saying that no longer is suitable for the person that you are in Christ. So he says in verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So what the Apostle Paul does is he gives us five practices to engage in relationships with your new self, the new self. Five practices. Practice number one, stop pretending and be honest. You must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. Put off, that little statement put off in the Greek has to do with put away once and for all. It's a decisive act to get rid of something once and for all. And he's basically saying, now that you are a Christ follower, now that you are a believer, there is no, absolutely no room in your relationships for dishonesty, deceit, lying, and manipulation. How many of you know that in your old life, some of us were master manipulators and liars? It was just the culture in which we lived. You got on a dating site. Man, you really doctored up that picture. Look nothing like who you really are. You spruced up your resume. 
You gave yourself a doctorate degree or so. You said you love puppy when you, puppies when you hate them. Just to try to manipulate and try to find, uh, tell people what you thought they wanted to hear. Because sometimes in our old self, truth is subjective. And you had very little respect for truth. It was all about communicating in a way to get something out of it. And the Bible tells us in your new self, there is no room for dishonesty. And I know what some of you are saying, Pastor, I'm not a liar. I don't really tell lies. I just tell little white lies. And I would just want to say, since when were lies color-coded? Well, that's a white lie, a blue lie, black lie, purple lie, pink lie. Uh, people tell me that all the time. No, that was just a little white lie. And, and let me, can I tell you something in Scripture, there is no color coding of our lies. A lie is a lie, period. And if you're going to have a relationship God's way that engages people the way that God is asking you to engage, it means that there is honesty, even if it hurts. There is no manipulation. There is truth-telling. There is vulnerability even when there's consequences there. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, put off falsehood. Falsehood is pretending, bending the truth, manipulating, telling lies, covering things up, and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we all are members of one body. So he goes on to tell us that the way that you speak to other people is important because ultimately you are connected to those people. And when you lie to someone else, you in essence are doing damage to the body because you are connected to the body. It tells us, by the way, in John chapter 8, verse 44, uh, Jesus is telling us that um, it's talking about the enemy. It's talking about the dark side. It's talking about the devil. It says, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I want you to understand something. The language of the kingdom of God is truth. The language of the dark kingdom is lies and deception. The native language. What do I mean by native language? Every country has a native language, a native tongue. It's what is spoken in that place. I grew up in the country of Spain. In Spain, our native tongue is Spanish. Now, I know that some of you think it's weird Spanish, those of you that speak Spanish, because it's Castilian Spanish. And we say things like zapato, zanahoria, cebolla, corazón. And, um, but, but it's still Spanish, it's Spanish. And so I grew up in Spain, everywhere outside of my house, I spoke Spanish, Castilian Spanish. In my house, I spoke English because my house, my parents were Americans, and so I spoke English in my house, but we were not speaking the native language. When I came to the U.S., we spoke English, and English is our native language here. The native tongue is the tongue of a culture. Listen, you are now people of the kingdom of God. If you have chosen to follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are people of the kingdom. Your native language is truth. Your native language now is truth in love. 
And some of you are still practicing and speaking the language that you grew up in, which was the language of deception and lying and bending of truth and camouflaging and manipulation. And, and what Paul is telling us is you are no longer, you are to take off the old and put on the new and the new has integrity. Now, let me say this about speaking truth, by the way. Once in a while, I'll have someone tell me really proudly, usually, they say, Pastor, I always speak the truth. People always know what's on my mind. And that's the excuse for them to be brutally honest and sometimes uh, unconsciously step over all everybody. Can I tell you something? We don't always know, we don't always want to know what's on your mind. You can speak the truth. Sometimes you just don't need to say what's on your mind. The Bible says in Ephesians, a, a, a couple of, ch of verses before, it says, instead, speak the truth in what? In love. Speak the truth in love. We will grow to become, in every respect, mature body, uh, who is the head that is Christ. In other words, our native tongue is truth, truth-telling, honestly, void of manipulation, full of integrity, but we don't just blatantly say whatever's on our mind. We are able to discipline our tongue and choose to speak what we need to speak, especially if it's edifying to the people around us. That is a new language for most of us. Can I tell you something? If your dating relationship right now is based on lies and half-truths and manipulation, it will come to a quick, rapid crash in the future. There will be distrust, disrespect, and disillusionment wherever there is lies, wherever there is a lack of transparency, where there is no truth ultimately relationships will come crashing down. And the Apostle Paul is telling us, now that you're in Christ, you engage in your relationships with a degree of honesty that you never had before. There is a transparency. Our goal is not to put on a facade. Our goal is not to lie so that people, we tell people what they wanna hear, but our goal is to be as truthful in love as possibly with everyone that's around us. Number two, I'm talking about the habits of the new person. Number two, he goes on and says, not only stop pretending and be honest, but secondly, don't let anger, oh, this is a big one, don't let anger turn into a foothold. Notice what it says in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Is it just me? Or does it feel like there's a lot more angry people these days? Is it just me? Or does it feel like on the expressway, there's a lot of angry drivers? Is it just me? Or does it feel like on social media, Whatever you post, people want to vent, and there's extremes and anger, and it's volatile. We live in a time where anger has escalated, where people's emotions are on edge. Now, let me say this about anger. Anger is an emotion. Emotions are not sinful. 
Emotions are secondary responses to our thinking. It's not a sin to get angry. It's not a sin to get sad. It's not a sin to get joyful. It's our emotions, our emotions are not sin, but our emotions can lead to sin. Are you tracking with me? Jesus was the son of God and was perfect in every way, and Jesus became angry. The Bible tells us that he went into the temple and he saw what they were doing in the temple and that he became angry and he turned over the tables in the temple because he was angry, but yet we know he did not sin. In the Old Testament, it tells us that God became angry. There's an emotion of anger and there is such a thing as righteous anger. What is anger? Anger, if you take a definition of anger, anger is a strong emotion accompanied by feelings of strong burst of energy. It can be characterized by great displeasure, indignation, hostility, wrath, and at times rage. So I want to just calm your spirit down and let you know that anger is not a sin. So if you got angry this morning because your teenage daughter was taking 45 minutes in that bathroom and not letting anybody else get in, you didn't necessarily sin. However, what the Apostle Paul tells us is that a lot of people allow anger to sabotage their relationships. And this is what he says. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. So what the Apostle Paul does is he tells us that if we're not going to allow our anger to turn into sin, then we have to put a time limit on how long we're allowed to be angry with an individual. Are you tracking with me? So it's okay to be angry for a season but if you, don't let, if you don't deal with the emotion of anger, anger will evolve into something less volatile but more deadly, like bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness. I remember when Dee and I first got married, we were still trying to figure out our conflict resolution dance. How many of you know that you have to figure out how to fight fair? And everybody has a little bit of their own little dance. Some people clam up and get real quiet. Some people get real verbal and want to talk about it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You want to talk and someone, you say, well, what is going on? Talk to me, talk to me. And they're like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember one of our first fights. We, were, we had gone through premarital counseling and our premarital counselors had told us, hey, you need to figure out how to fight fair. And you have to understand how people react and everybody's wired a little bit different. And so I was coming with my counseling um, mindset there, they, uh, keeping in mind what I had been told. And so uh, I got in the car to drive and I said, what's wrong? Nothing. Is everything okay? Yep. You want to talk about it? Nope. Did I do something wrong? How many of you know that look? 
And how you know, you, you're trying to say, what did I do? Let, let, me think, let me think back. Like, I'm supposed to know what I did wrong. Like, I'm even more angry that you don't know what you did wrong. And so I said, well, do you want to talk about it? Nope. So I said, okay, hon. Let, 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 I, I don't know what I did wrong. I'm trying to figure out what I did wrong. Obviously, whatever I did wrong really upset you. So let me, let's give you a time. How, I said, how long do you need? I said, 20 minutes, a half hour, 35 minutes, you tell me, I'll give you that time, and then after, we'll talk about it. Now, my intentions were right. I should have probably agreed upon this before she was mad because she didn't take kindly to it, but essence what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that there should be a time limit to your anger, and the time limit is this, 24 hours. In other words, you should not go to bed angry, you should deal with your anger before you go to bed and not sleep on it and wake up the next day with greater anger. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I've told you this before. If I want to have a good fight, I try to get the good fight way early in the morning. That way I have all day to be angry. No, I'm just kidding. The point that the Apostle Paul is making is that there should be a time limit to your anger because, listen to me well, when, when anger is not dealt with, when you don't deal with the root of what is causing you to be angry, then you just let that anger sit. Chances are, here's what happens, you have a strong emotion, you're feeling a strong emotion about this, you start rehearsing what was done or what was not done for you. You start going over the conversation. You start thinking about what you would say to that person if you were to really talk, and they say this, and you would say that. How many of you know you're always a lot better in your own mind when you're rehearsing these conversations? And you go over and over and over, and you feel that emotion again. And if you're alone and you haven't dealt with it, you get angrier. And if you don't deal with it, you let it set. And maybe you don't deal with it because you just feel like, I'm not going to say anything. And when you get up the next day, you still feel it. The anger diminishes down. But listen, the hurt has not gone away. And if you don't talk about the hurt... And you don't talk about the feelings that you had. What happens is the energy of the anger diffuses down. And so you think, I'm over it. But no, what has happened, it has evolved into something that's worse. It starts to evolve into resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness that causes you to withdraw that causes you to like, don't touch me, that sort of attitude. And what happens is it starts creating barriers between you and the person that you're trying to relate to. Now, what the Apostle Paul says happens, listen, this is a, a, a great insight. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. If you look at this uh, phrasing in the Greek, literally it says, do not grant space to the devil to move into. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that when you do not deal with your anger and you just let it sit there, but there's hurt there that starts to develop into resentment when you do not deal with it, in essence, what you're doing is you're opening up a door 
you're inviting a space for the enemy of our souls to come and have ownership in our relationship, in our household, in our marriage, in our family. You're giving him space in your household. And when he's in your household, he will start to work deceit, deception, bitterness, hatred, anger, toxic families fall apart because we don't deal with our issues. And you wake up one day and wonder, what happened to my marriage? How did my family get so torn up like this? And I can point you to the root. The root was you didn't deal with it when you should have dealt with it. You opened up a door. You invited the enemy in. You gave him a place. You provided a space, a spiritual space, an anchor a beachhead for him to wreak havoc on your life because you gave the devil a foothold by not dealing with the anger when you should have dealt with the anger. This is a powerful principle when it comes to our relationships. There are families right now that are hearing my voice that do not speak to each other because you've allowed anger to wreak havoc on your relationships. There are relatives right now, you barely remember what started the fight. You just know that you're angry at them. And you have a laundry list of things of how they've hurt you, but it started by not dealing with the issues you should have dealt with. There are couples right now that barely have intimacy, that have barely had sex in months, sometimes years, and they cohabit together for the sake of the kids or the family or convenience or money issues, but have very little relationship with one another. They remember the days they used to like each other. They remember the days they used to talk and laugh together. They remember the days where they were close and they look and they wonder what happened to us. And what happened to them is that oftentimes it boils down to this unresolved hurt that we did not have the courage, the strength, the ability to deal with. And we created a room for the enemy to wreak havoc on our relationships and damage that which God had entrusted to us. Number three, be a giver, not a taker. Verse 28 says, anyone, again, I feel like the apostle Paul is giving us just staccato, boom, 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 points very quickly given us, these are all connected thoughts, these are not disconnected. The theme that connects them together is that the old self engaged people this way, the new self needs to engage people in this way. That's the theme. So these are not unrelated thoughts that the Apostle Paul has given us. And verse 28, he turns to the idea of us being givers and not just takers. Verse 28 says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. 
You say, well, Pastor Mark, what does stealing have to do with this whole idea of relationships? A lot, because the heart behind stealing is that I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me because I feel entitled to take it. The heart behind stealing is I'm taking something because I feel like it's owed to me or that I should have it or because I don't have the patience to wait to be able to afford it and so I'm taking something that is not rightfully mine because I feel entitled that it should be mine. The attitude behind stealing is the attitude that destroys relationships because it's an attitude of give me, give me, give me. I deserve, I need, it's mine, it should be mine. People that get into marriage believing that marriage is going to fulfill the desires of their heart and in a consumer selfish way get into marriage feeling like I need companionship, I need sex, I need a partner, I need someone to come home to. If you get into marriage simply looking for marriage to meet your needs as a taker, then I'm going to tell you your marriage will probably not last very long. Because you've entered into marriage with a selfish mentality. I want this to meet my needs. And there are times in your marriage, no matter how good it is, that you will be giving more than taking. People get sick. People go through difficulty. Babies happen. Life changes. Pressure's on. And if you feel like that person is no longer needing my need and you got into marriage so that person would meet your need, you'll wake up one day and say, hey, they're not meeting my needs the way I thought they should meet my needs. So I don't want to be in this marriage because my needs are not being met. That's a taker mentality. And what the Apostle Paul uh, talks about, he uses the context of work to describe an attitude that a lot of people engage in. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. He, in essence, exposes the heart, and oftentimes we believe that we should work to pay our bills, which is right. We should work because we have needs, which is right. We should work because we have to pay our mortgage and our light bill and our gas bill and put food on our table and our car and all that, which is right. But the Apostle Paul goes beyond that and he says, hey, I want you to get rid of this mentality of taking and I actually want you to work and have resources in order for you to be able to give. In essence, what he's saying is if you're engaged in a relationship, you can't just be a taker, you have to be a giver. There's something powerful about that. And by the way, can I say this? There are some people, Christians, I've heard them say, well, the Bible says that work is a curse. The Bible never says that work is a curse. Work is a blessing. You say, well, I thought in Genesis after the fall that God cursed man with work. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he cursed the land so that work became difficult, so the difficulty of work is a curse, but work is not a curse, it's a blessing. 
if you find something that you enjoy doing and they pay you to do it and you're good at it and you have passion for it, work is a blessing. It should be energizing and fulfilling to you. And we don't always land in that spot, but it should be energizing. Any work that's done with dignity and done for God is worthy of embracing and it should be fulfilling and it's a blessing from God. By the way, I think a lot of people, I run into people that spend a lot of time trying to avoid work. They spend more work trying to figure out how not to work than they would if they were actually working. And the Bible says a lot about work, by the way. In fact, the Bible says that, uh, you know, if you're able-bodied and have the ability to work and you choose not to work just out of sheer, I'm not going to work, then the Bible says that you're worse than an unbeliever, that if those that don't work should not eat, and I think we can't go very long without eating. I remember early on in my pastorate, I was ministering and we were working in uh, some uh, projects in Chicago, and I remember leading a, a young family to Christ, him and his wife to Christ, and they had four or five children, but they were in an environment where no one worked in their environment. And um, so this young man came to Christ with his wife and they got real excited about the Bible and real engaged in scripture and wanted to become members of the church and sat down with me. And, um, and I remember I had a private conversation with just him and his wife and we sat down and they said, we want to become a part of this church and we want to become members of this church. And I was in my early twenties and I sat down and I said, um, you can't yet. And the young man looked at me surprised and said, why? I said, well, you're living in sin. He said, how? I said, you know what? I've given you three job opportunities I've, I've, I've given you leads on this. And each one of you, and then you've denied for some reason or another. You haven't worked all the time that I've known you. You're healthy, you're able-bodied, you have children, you have a wife, but you choose not to work. The Bible calls that sin. He was angry. He had been raised in a context of non-work and was angry and stormed out of there. Him and his wife. About a week later, he called me up and he said, Pastor, you're right. I, no one around me works, but I, I realize I need to. Let me tell you. I wish I could tell you more about that story. But this, this man went out. He got to work. They, they moved out of the projects. They bought their house. They sent their kids to college. Their kids have gotten married, have jobs. They broke a cycle when they finally determined, hey, I'm not going to be a taker, but I'm going to be a giver. When you come to church, I understand if you're new in Christ, if you're a new person, or if you've come here and you have huge needs in your life, maybe you're healing because there's brokenness, or maybe you have addiction in your life that needs to be overcome, or maybe you're just recovering from a nasty divorce, or maybe you're struggling with depression, and so you can barely do anything but just show up, and you need because, hey, you're at a really difficult, dark time in your life. But there comes a time in your life when you grow up, when you start maturing, when you've received, when you've healed, when you've filled up enough, 
That when you come to church, it's not just about what can I get out of the message and the worship and what can people give me. When you start maturing, you start coming and asking, how can I minister to people? How can I pray for someone? Who needs encouragement today? How can I bless someone? How can I reach out to someone? Because let me tell you, those who have received much, they want to give much as well. And it's a sign of maturity when you stop just coming saying, hey, I hope the message, I hope I get something out of the message. But when you start looking around and say, I hope I can encourage someone that's at church today. I hope I can lead a small group. I hope I can mentor someone. I hope I can pray for someone at the altar. I hope I can serve in children's ministry. I hope I can be a greeter because you start becoming a giver, not just a taker. You start saying, I have something to give. And can I tell you something? Listen, look up at me, people of God. You have something to give. You have received forgiveness, so give forgiveness. You've received love, so give it. You've received mercy, so dispense it. You have something valuable. God has gifted you, and when you break out of a take mentality and start living with a give mentality, then it enhances your relationships and changes the dynamics of how you relate to people around you. Number four, speak as a builder, not a destroyer. Look at what it tells us in verse 29. And do not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Can I tell you something your words, the Bible tells us that the tongue has the power of life and death. You can either be a builder with your words or you can be a destroyer with your words. And the Apostle Paul, speaking about relationships and unity and community, he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. If you look that up in the Greek, unwholesome means corrupt communication. Not just obscene vulgarity, but slanderous and contemptuous talk. It means rotten, corrupt, and poor quality. It should not be coming out of our mouths. In other words, when what comes out of your mouth is destructive, is critical, pulls people down, is venting. When what comes out of your mouth tears down instead of builds up, then, then the Bible says, hey, you are, you are allowing, allowing your mouth to be used for malice instead of good. It says, but only allow what comes out of your mouth to be helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit the listeners. Listen to me. Can I talk to you parents for a second? Listen to me, parents. I have talked to grown men, tough, big, linebacker, grown men who have a frail sense of identity because they never had a father who spoke anything life-giving into them. They never had a father who said, you know, I see that in you. Well done, son. They had a father who pointed out their faults. They had a father who saw 
their deficiencies. They had a father who saw weaknesses, but never had the courage, the power, the strength, the ability, the audacity to speak life into their sons. And so these grown men are frail internal because they still are trying to prove their manhood because they never had a father speak it into them. If you're a parent here today, can I tell you, you are shaping the identity of your son and daughter. They will look at the world having been shaped by you. Your words matter. I remember my wife and I, when our kids were getting into their teenage years, I don't know, if, you, if your parents are teenagers here, you know that you're constantly saying, pick up, do this, do your homework, go to bed, turn the phone off, bring your phone, what's on it, uh, turn the TV down, stop fighting, eat your, eat your vegetables. You know, it seems like you're constantly on them, and then you wonder why your kids don't want to really be around you. They'll roll their eyes, they're all my parents, partly because it feels like you're just constantly, constantly on them. And so I remember feeling a little bit that with my kids when they were getting to that age. I felt like if I were to record all our conversations, most of them is correcting them about something. And so I talked to my wife and I said, you know what? We need to intentionally make sure that in all this correction, we take time to affirm, to speak, to build up. And so we deliberately began to do that. And I would make sure that not a day went by at nighttime. If it was a rough day, I'd go in and I would say something to my kids like, hey, you know what? I'm really glad that you're my son. If I were to choose a daughter out of all the daughters in the world, I'd have chose one just like you. Thank God he gave it to me. Or I would speak life into them. You know, son, today I saw something. I really, really appreciate that. There's something powerful about the affirmation of a parent speaking into the life and destiny of their children. And not just children. Adults need it just as much. And so I want to challenge you, encourage you. The Bible says, according to the needs, look at the needs of the person that you're married to. Look at the wiring of the individual that you're, that you're with or your relationships. And it says, build them up according to the needs that they may have so that it is a benefit to the listener. There is power in our words. I think of uh, a little off topic. We have a couple that's here that hasn't been here since COVID hit. And uh, this couple, when they got sick, the husband called me up at a desperate moment and he said, pastor, he said it a lot more desperately than that though, uh, desperate on the other end, voice cracking. The doctor has just told me that my wife is going to die, and she's in the hospital. Pastor, please, please pray for her. And um, this man prayed for his wife, and we prayed together. He had heard the words of the doctor. The doctor had said, she will not survive. Those are powerful words, even for a medical doctor to say, she will not survive. But he prayed, and I'm so happy that Jose and Marina are here for the first time right there. Raise your hand over there. He prayed her out of her. Yeah, he prayed her into that. 
He spoke it and said, you're going to recover. We're going to pray for you. We're not going to give up. There's power. And I believe there's some power of healing that comes when someone believes that someone's going to make it out. When someone is praying and believing with them, there is power there. And lastly, let me close with this. Listen, I wish I had time to preach this a little bit better, but my time has run out. The last and most important, these are habits in our relationship as, as, as new people in Christ Leaving the old behind, taking on the new. Here's what it says. Do not grieve the spirit. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with, you, with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. I want you to hear me well. The last one, number five, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You say, well, pastor, what does that mean? If you are a follower of Jesus, the moment that you came to Christ, there was a power in the form of a person that invaded your body, your spirit in particular, the third person of the Godhead called the Holy Spirit. He's not a force, he's not a wind, he's not a fire, he's not a power, it's the person of God manifest in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit, God himself, via his spirit, is the one that coaches you. In the Greek, it's called the paraclete, the one that comes alongside of you and coaches you. He convicts you. He, he guides you. He instructs you. He is your inner coach, God himself, empowered by the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, divine power from inside, 24 hours a day inside of you. Listen, the Bible says that when you have in your heart Malice, bitterness, resentment, sinful anger, slander in your relationships towards others that it grieves the Holy Spirit. This is a language of love. You can only grieve people that love you. If a stranger hurts me, it may anger me, it may irritate me, but it doesn't grieve me. When someone I love and care for hurts me, it grieves me. Here's the thing. God loves you in a deep and passionate, powerful way, more than what you could ever imagine or fathom. When you carry baggage, relational baggage of resentment, unforgiveness, sinful anger, brawling, slander, when you and your spouse are, are in a hateful relationship, when there's bitterness towards people around you, what happens is that you grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve? It means that you sadden the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And can I tell you something? When the Holy Spirit is sad, you are sad. When the Holy Spirit is sad, you lack energy and joy because the Holy Spirit is sad. The Holy Spirit has come to give you joy and power and love. The Holy Spirit energizes you, but when he's grieved, you feel the grieving. 
I wish I could tell you what it means to be sealed into the day of redemption. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means sealed is a deposit. Redemption means to buy back. You have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit, reminding you that one day you will be fully made into the image of Christ. In other words, you will be fully glorified. Right now, you're in the working. You're being made. You haven't, you haven't fully arrived, but you've been given a deposit, a seal that says you belong to God, and God is at work in you until he finishes you. It may take a while, but you've been sealed, sealed until the day of redemption. And it says, because you've been sealed in the day of redemption, you should not carry with you the baggage that you carried into the world. But instead, there needs to be a kindness and compassionate heart that leads to forgiving just as Christ forgave us. I'm going to close our time together by asking you to stand. I don't know the health of your relationships. I don't know if today you are grieving the Holy Spirit because there's resentment or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart. But I believe that the Spirit of God is using His Word to speak to people today. I know that if you're grieving the Holy Spirit, that you feel the emotion of grief in your heart. I want to be clear about this. Listen to me well. There is no condemnation to, who, to that person that's in Christ Jesus. A lot of people live with guilt and condemnation. That's not of God. Condemnation is you are dirty and there's something wrong with your person. Conviction is this behavior doesn't belong to the person that you are because you are not that person. Do you understand the difference? Condemnation is about you as a person. Conviction is about your behavior. If you are born again of the Spirit of God, you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. You are loved and valued and appreciated. You've been washed and cleansed and redeemed. You are loved and you can do nothing to make yourself more loved before God because He loves you with an everlasting love. But there may be behavior that you've engaged in that grieves the heart of God that God says that should not be a part of your existence. Today, If the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart about any of these areas, about being honest, stop manipulating or lying, about your anger, giving a foothold to the enemy, about being a giver and not just a taker, about speaking as a builder and not a destroyer, and about not grieving his Holy Spirit because of baggage that you carry. 
God has spoken to you and convicted you, then I'm going to encourage you to respond. I believe there's some people today, maybe you couldn't articulate it, maybe you didn't know why, but today as I've spoken, you realize I've been grieving the Spirit because I'm living with something that God has said that's not yours to live with. I've been carrying baggage, relational baggage, that God is saying, it grieves me that you're carrying this. It grieves me that you're holding on to this. Release it. That doesn't belong to you. If God has spoken to you, and you know that you've been grieving the Spirit of God in any of these five areas that we've talked about, then I'm going to invite you right now, even before we start singing, I'm going to invite you to come to the altar right now and say, I know that I'm grieving God in this area. And today, I'm going to leave it before God. I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to say, God, I don't want this in my life. I don't want to have it in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of it. I want this baggage off of me. This altar's open, and I know there's people that need to come up. If you know that you've been grieving the Spirit of God, and God is saying, deal with it, deal with it, repent, release it, get rid of it, get rid of it. Stop grieving me. Grieving, the only way you stop the grieving is through repentance. You acknowledge, God, this should not be in my life. I don't want it there anymore. I confess it before you. This anger, this bitterness, this re repent, this resentment that I have, God. And Lord, I, I choose to forgive, and only by your power can I release it, God. But I need your strength and power to heal me and to work in my life, God, because I'm not living with joy. I'm grieving your Holy Spirit. And God, I'm tired of grieving your Spirit. I'm done with grieving your Spirit. I want to live in the fullness of your Spirit, with the joy of the Spirit of God. I want to live in a way that I sense your presence once again. And I feel your smile once again upon my heart because I'm not grieving the Spirit of God. Today, I choose repentance in Jesus' name. As people pray at this altar, I want you to be specific with God. What is it that God is asking you to release? I want you to be specific about the area, the person, the resentment, the anger. And God, say, I'm confessing this before you, God. This does not belong to my life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. I repent of it. I turn from it. Give me the power to release it, God, so that I can begin to live your way instead of my old way. We're going to sing this song as God, as God works, as you just talk to God. Just talk to God today. I'm done with grieving, Lord. I do not want to grieve your Holy Spirit, Lord.